Well, let's review where we are in, uh, we're studying the kings of Israel, particularly this beginning part that's transitioning from judges into kings. And I want to just kind of reset the deck for where we're at. We're calling this series Game of Thrones. And the big question, the big idea to sum up the entirety of this series is there is a throne that is up for grabs. There's a throne that's up for grabs at the heart of yourself. You don't get to sit on it. It's not for you. But you get to open the door for something or someone to come have a seat at the center of who you are. I would hope, and it is my prayer, that that throne is given to the king of the universe. And what a blessing and, and, and incredible thought it is that the one who sits, as we read in Revelation, this song that we sang is about it, the one who's seated on that throne of heaven also desires to take residence in the throne of your heart. What an incredible, incredible thought. That's the overarching concept. It's the big idea for what it means to be Christian, for what it means to be a follower of God. And we see it reflected in the lives of the people of Israel as they've uh, been, you know, called, God called Abraham, then they were uh, rescued out of exile in Egypt, then they traveled through the wilderness, they've come into the promised land, and God used judges, starting with Moses and ending with Samuel, to oversee the people. But the people wanted something else. You see, there was this series of judges was kind of a theocracy. It was intended to be that God was the king. And God ruled over the people through the expression of these judges. But the people wanted something different. They wanted to be like the nations around them. They wanted their own king. The people weren't following God. The judges would come and they would sort of recenter the people. But when that judge would die, we read in the book of Judges, it's bookended at the beginning and end of the book, that the people's hearts would return to their corrupt ways. And so they beg for a king, and the people go to the last of the judges, Samuel, and Samuel says, I'll go to God and ask the Lord about that, and God says, go ahead and do it for them, anoint a king. And we studied last week the providence in which God set up the first king, Saul. It's an incredible story. Saul had this problem in his life, inherited uh, to him from his dad, given to him from his dad, these donkeys that were lost. And Saul's dad, Kish, sent Saul out on this hunt to go bring back these donkeys, which was a fruitless hunt, except that by the end of it, he was anointed king. You mean you set off one day to find some lost donkeys, you come back anointed king over the nation. It just was an incredible ride. And the question that we asked for this is, what if your problems in life, see Saul had a problem, the lost donkeys, and he was focused on that problem, but what if God is orchestrating things? What if life isn't a coincidence? And what if the things that go on in your life are actually the hand of God guiding and directing things, putting things into place to do something? And so we prayed the prayer that God would give us eyes to see what he is doing and give us ears to hear what he wants to say to us. All right. I kind of wish we could do just a super in-depth, like verse-by-verse study of everything related to these kings because they're absolutely fascinating, but we would be in this thing for a whole lot longer than any of us probably want to be. 
But we're going to look at the Saul and see this beginning of his time. He had this heart. We ended up last week. This heart was given to him, a new heart by God. And he was worshiping and he was prophesying. And he was fighting enemies and he was victorious. But he was not the best at remembering the Lord. And his heart began to slip. Saul's heart begins to slip. He starts off so well, but his heart begins to slip. And the story where we first begin to see this, Samuel is late to go with Saul to offer this sacrifice to the Lord. Now Samuel is the priest. Samuel is the one who should be doing this, but he's late. He doesn't get there in time. And so Saul says, give me the sacrifice. Just let me do it. I'll offer it. And he offers this unlawful sacrifice to the Lord, and it sets the stage for this downward spiral in Saul's life. Saul would make rash decisions. He would say foolish things. He would lead out of his own fear in his heart. And then there came this final nail in the coffin, God's instructions regarding the Amalekites. Now, this just covers a few chapters in the book of 1 Samuel. We go from Saul's anointing to Saul's downfall very, very fast. It doesn't last long. Okay, so the Amalekites are, are, God gives the people these instructions. Saul, go fight the Amalekites and go wipe them out. They are an abomination to me. Get rid of all of them. Every person, every animal, go wipe them out. And that seems very, very harsh. It really does. Um, But God is able to do these things. God is just, and God is able to to offer something like that. And Saul heads out into battle against the king of the Amalekites. This king's name is Agag, King Agag. And he goes to fight these guys, but he doesn't fully obey the Lord. He decimates the majority, but he keeps some of the best sheep, and he keeps some of the best oxen, and some of the best lambs, and he keeps some of the gold and the other money, and he hides it away, and he keeps King Agag in a cage there in the camp. Keeps King Agag, probably trying to hold him for ransom so that Saul can get more. So he has disobeyed the Lord. Now here's something fascinating. I don't know. I I remember the moment that this light bulb went off in my own mind as I was by looking at the Bible here, and that is the ripple effect of sin. Hundreds of years later, long after Saul, long after David, long after all the kings, when the people of Israel were in exile, we get to this story, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, of this girl named Esther. And the prime villain in this story is called an Agagite. He's an Agagite. There is no people group called Agagites in the Bible. There's not Amalekites. Agagites are believed to be descendants of King Agag, who Saul didn't put to death hundreds of years earlier. Had Saul followed through on what God had asked him to do, Haman, the bad guy in the story of Esther, (laughs) that probably wouldn't have even been a thing. But those ripple effects of sin affect us far beyond ourselves. And it's something for us to remember today. Sometimes, this is just a little aside. I could preach you a whole sermon on this. Just a little aside for you today. When you sin, you may think it's done in secret. And you may think that it doesn't impact anyone else. 
But oh my goodness, the ripple effect can extend generations. Generations. Some of you may be the bearers of an inheritance from generations before you where sin was a part of your life. Some of you may bear that. Some of you, um, you know, may, may have that burden. The good news is God's grace and his love and his mercy, the Bible tells us, extends for thousands of generations. But let's not get depressed this morning. All right. Well, God begins to regret his decision to have Saul anointed as king. Saul has not been obedient, and so he sends out Samuel saying, uh, Samuel, we need to take care of some things. And so Samuel goes out to the camp where Saul is, and Saul is caught a little bit off guard. He's like, hey, Samuel, what are you doing here? This is so unexpected that you would arrive. Check it out, Samuel. I did everything that the Lord asked me to do. Remember when he asked me to go into battle against the Amalekites? I did it, and I did everything that God asked me to do. And Samuel asked Saul this question, then why do I hear a flock of sheep bleeding and cows mooing? Oh, yeah, those. Well, about those. Yeah, you know, I was saving those, Saul says. I decided to set those aside as a sacrifice to God. How many of you have ever tried to cover up your sin <laughs> by making it holy somehow? If I can just sanctify my sin then it will be right. So let me get this right. You know, I'll sanctify it. We'll say I was doing this for God. And now that you're here, Samuel, let's go do it. You know, I wouldn't want to make the same mistake that I made a while back when I offered the sacrifice before you were here. But now that you're here, let's offer this sacrifice. The Lord knows Saul's heart. Saul did not intend this for good. Saul was not obedient to God. And Samuel knew Saul's heart too. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel issues these words, which just chill me, to Saul. Because I think they can apply to me too. Read them with me. What is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Let's pause right here for just a moment. What is this saying to us? It's more important that you obey the Lord than you come and give an offering in the offering plate. It's more important that you're obedient to His direction in your life and what He wills for you than it is that you do some grand gesture for Him. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't. He doesn't need that. What God wants and he desires is the obedience of your heart. Let's read on. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So the times were a-changing. And Saul's time is over. Saul blew it and he knew it. And Samuel ends this exchange by doing something that I've been alluding to for weeks. He asks for King Agag to be brought to him, the ungodly king. And Agag gets excited because he thinks, yes, they're getting me out of prison. They're going to use me for some sort of ransom plea. This is going to be great. We're going to negotiate the terms. 
He goes to where the old man Samuel, who, I mean, this guy, Samuel was old at this point. He goes in where old man Samuel is standing there. Samuel picks up a sword and does what Saul wouldn't do. And the Bible says, this is just great. It's probably good we don't have a lot of children here with us uh, this morning. The, the Bible says he hacked Agag to pieces. Woo! <laughs> Tell you, man, there's some times when the pastor wants to get the sword and you, know, you just go wave it around and it's good times. <clears throat> Sadly, we're not called to do that much anymore like Samuel was. Well, the story gets more crazy. Samuel goes to anoint a new king, David, who's the opposite of Saul in his description. He's not head and shoulders above the others. He's not the most handsome in the land. He's just a kid who plays music and watches sheep. And in fact, he can't even find him right at first. We'll get to the details on David later, but I want to complete our looking at Saul's life because this is about him right now. This David ends up not only being anointed as who will one day be the next king, but also ends up serving Saul in an official capacity as his official music player. This David, who's anointed as the next king, also fights a Philistine giant named Goliath, goes into battle against a giant with a slingshot. and You all know that story, so we'll skip that for now. Saul makes him a commander over his armies. And David starts leading this band of merry men, it kind of sounds like Robin Hood, around fighting battles, doing things that Saul was too afraid to do. And we get to this point in 1 Samuel 18, where we start to see Saul is still on the throne. God's rejected him, but Saul is still there. And David is this up-and-comer, this next person that God has anointed and blessed. And we start to see this crazy dynamic happen. 1 Samuel chapter 18, beginning with verse 5. Read with me. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. So everybody loves this David kid. Saul's officers love this David kid. The people of, of Israel love this David kid. Read on. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, about a million women from the, all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and they danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. Things seem so good right now. The Israelite Top 40 chart. This song goes out to Israelites everywhere. Those of you who are oppressed by the Philistines. Here's the number one song in Israel. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, I don't know the tune to that song. Um, I'd love to make it up for you and say, you know, sing it, but I dare not uh, try. But boy, it was a great song. Lyric, lyric genius right here. I mean, this is poetic mastery. But they're singing this song. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. Here's what happens. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said. They credit David with ten thousand and me with only thousands? Next, they'll be making him their king. 
So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Saul knows this. God's already told him it's happening. But Saul, instead of being able to transition well and end well, even though he's messed up, instead of turning it around, he continues down this road that will lead him into more and more misery. It's this road of envy and jealousy. And envy is so fundamentally irrational. I don't know if you've noticed that before, but envy is insane. There's an insanity in envy. When envy takes root in your heart, we do things that don't make sense, like seeing the hand of God's blessing on someone else in a manifest and obvious way, knowing that it's God's blessing and still turning that person into our enemy. Envy follows success with a hungry eye asking questions like, what about me? Or why not me? One of the ways that we can know whether we're in danger of the trap of envy is the kind of questions we start to ask when success shows up in someone else's life. When David shows up and goes off like a rocket, moving from shepherd boy to general to to, you know, the, the hometown hero in no time flat, what is the greatest concern on Saul's mind? If we were to find ourselves at David's dad's, Jesse's house, would Saul have said something that sounded like this? Well, I'm praying for that David kid that the success won't go to his own head, that he stays humble and he remembers that the Lord is in the midst of these great opportunities and blessings. What are the things that we start to say when success starts to exhibit itself in someone else's life? Envy can creep in so easily. And if I'm honest with myself, I have to admit that I'm envious. There are times when I'm very envious. I'm envious of the way that some people can eat anything that they like and not gain a pound. How? I'm envious that athletic people are, seem to be good at every sport they'll try while I have a hard time walking and chewing gum in some sort of synchronization. I'm envious at the way that some smart people don't have to study hard. They just can learn things and pick things up. Sometimes I think the whole world would much, be a much better place if I had a different set of genes from my parents. And I know that some of you can identify with the feelings of envy. And there are times when the enemy comes and whispers in your ear, they don't deserve what they got, but you do. Envy is an insanity. But we all deal with this insanity on some level. Do you know that for a pastor, you can deal with envy? Pastors are not above it. There are others around from the outside who would look to be very successful. And you get a group of pastors together and you ask the question, well, how are things? And you hear one pastor say, oh, it's great. A million people were baptized in my church last Sunday. And, you know, it's great. Oh, you know, we're building this new $3 million thing and we haven't had to take out a, a, a little, even a little bit of a loan. You know, the money just came in. You go to a seminar on church leadership and you say, we figured out the secret to success. This is how things can be amazing. If you just stop what you're doing and put our plan into place in your local church, then everything will work. Ah, 
it can really consume you. And I am ashamed to admit that I've had seasons in my life where I, as a pastor, have been consumed by envy over the things that are going on in the life and ministry of somebody else. Now, what a terrible, terrible thing to be envious about. What a shameful thing to be envious about. That God would want to do something good in the life and in the, through the ministry of somebody else. Here's some things that envy does to us. First of all, envy blinds us to our own good gifts. When your heart is full of jealousy or envy, it blinds you to your own good gifts. The envious person may have some wonderful assets and some wonderful abilities, but all he can see or hear or think about is the gifts and blessings that they don't have, but somebody else does have. What another person has always seems larger or better or more special. And the person who's blinded by envy can't focus on what God is doing or has done for them. All we can think is, I want what that other person's got. Again, I realized this. There was a time in my life when I was so caught up with all the bad things that were going on for me and so upset that everything was going wrong for me but seemed great everywhere else that I realized I'd completely overlooked a blessing that God had given me in my own life. And somebody called me out on it and said, you realize in all this cloud and gloom that you feel like is going on in your life, do you realize that this thing happened and you haven't taken the time to thank the Lord for the good things that are happening? I was completely blind to it. I had to go to a friend and hear that from that friend and admit that and be changed. Saul had the opportunity to end his time as king well, but he failed. He wasn't the man for the hour. He couldn't cut it. His definition of himself was that he was small. And he saw himself not how God saw himself as God's chosen man, but as step trying to, step, kept trying to identify himself by the success of those around him. He could have ended well. Yeah, I blew it, Saul could have said. I messed up. But let me hand the baton to the next runner. Let me be a champion for the next runner. Let's think about Saul's kingship for a minute. Was it even really Saul's to have? Who gave it to Saul? God did. Did Saul even ask for it? No. It was bestowed upon him. It was a blessing from God. But Saul couldn't see what it really was. So envy blinds us to our own good gifts. Second, envy forces us to keep our eyes on the competition and off of God. We read that from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. He was so focused on what David was doing, how many victories David had won, how did the people see and think of David, where could God have led Saul in this moment if Saul had put his eyes on God and instead of putting them on David? How can we get anywhere that God wants us to go if we're not looking for him. What are you looking at today? What are you consumed by today? The next thing I think that envy does to us is envy makes us see the achievements of other people as threats to us. I'm going to tell you a quick story here. There was once a shopkeeper who had a bitter rivalry with the other shopkeeper across the street. 
their stores were directly across from one another, and they would spend each day keeping track of what was going on in the other guy's store, how many customers they got. Um, if one got a customer and the other didn't, they, he would smile and triumph at his rival, and then at the end of the day, they'd measure their success, not by their net profits, but by whether or not they'd made more money than the competitor across the street. Well, in this story, one night to one of the two shopkeepers, an angel appeared to the shopkeeper and said, God sent me here with a message for you. He wants to give you anything you'll ask for. But whatever you receive, he said, your competitor across the street will receive twice as much. So, you want to be rich? Yeah, ask for that. But your competitor is going to be twice as rich. You want to live a long and healthy life? Yeah, you can ask for that, but he's going to live twice as long and twice as healthy as you do. What is your desire? The shopkeeper frowned. He sure liked the idea of being rich, but he hated the idea that his neighbor shopkeeper would be even richer than he was. He liked the idea of living a long and healthy life, but he couldn't stand the idea of his competitor living longer than he did. And so he thought and he thought and he thought for a moment. Then a light bulb went off in his head. And he said, here's my request. Strike me blind in one eye. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not the reaction I was expecting. I thought you all would laugh. Okay. You all were expecting like some deep uh, thing. I should have prefaced that this was a joke, not a real thing. <laughs> was David a threat to Saul? No. David's no threat to Saul. Did David do anything wrong? No. But Saul is so consumed with envy that David's successes aren't something that he can rejoice over. Instead, Saul is threatened by them. So again, back to personal stories. Am I threatened by a successful church, does that scare me? If so, we've stopped being kingdom-minded. If God chooses to bless a place in our community in an incredible way, and that place is growing and thriving, should we brood over that and be threatened by them? No. The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas said, love rejoices in our neighbor's good while envy grieves over it. You see, where is God moving? Rather than grieving over the fact that it's not us or thinking that it's not us, what if we rejoice wherever we see God doing something good? Well, this envy that made Saul see David as a threat led to a point where, well, multiple points where Saul would physically try to kill David, multiple times with a spear, by sending him into battles that he thought David wouldn't win, by sending his other loyal soldiers out after David. He saw David as such a threat that he thought he had to get rid of it and axe it. The next thing that envy is, is envy is a triangular desire. Now this is a little confusing, but let me try to break it down for you. A simple desire involves a subject and an object. Right now, some of you might be desiring lunch. Some of you might be desiring the end of this sermon. 
Some of you might be desiring a new something in your life. That's just a simple desire. But a triangular desire involves a subject, that's you, an object that you desire, and a model who makes the object desirable because they desired it first. Okay? Again, try to simplify this for you. Who has ever worked with kids in a nursery? All right, some of you know about triangular desires then, okay? Because if we bring Deborah to the nursery, and the nursery is full of toys, but there's another child in the nursery who has a particular toy, even if Deborah had that same toy with her, which toy does she want? That one. What gives that one value? Because someone else wanted it first. That's triangular desire. All right? And here's the insanity of this triangular desire. It's not just a feature for toddlers. It explains why two roommates can wreck a long friendship by competing for the attention of the same girl. It explains why two coworkers can destroy a long partnership over a big client. It explains why advertising, branding, and the willingness of people to pretend to enjoy things that they hate because someone will admire that they enjoy it. I mean, who's had sparkling water? What is that? LaCroix. What in the world is that stuff, huh? Do you know what I'm talking about? Somebody say amen. We don't, nobody likes that stuff, but you think you have to because it's everybody else does, right? Oh boy, it explains why a king who craves the esteem of his people would try to pin a young hero against the wall because he heard some women singing about him in a song. Triangular desire is a corrupt form of imitation in which we move from wanting to be like the model to competing with the model to wanting to replace the model. It's not that we merely want what that person has. We want to be that person. We want to be that person. When the second child sees the first child playing, he doesn't mainly want the toy. He wants the experience of joy that comes that the first child is experiencing. If the first child gave up the toy and picked up a different toy and started happily playing with it, the second child would not now desire the first toy. Now they would desire the second toy. This is the envious triangular desire. And the harder we try to compete and lust for the happiness of another, it eludes us. We can't get there. We'll never get there, and yet it's this trap that we fall into. Here's the next thing that I see about envy. Envy ruins relationships. It leaves in its wake nothing but strife, division, conflict, and uh, relational wreckage. Parents can be crushed and confused at the enmity between their kids because they fail to recognize that most of the conflicts in the family are really over the parent's approval or blessing or favor. Friendships are ruined when elbows start to get thrown because one person receives opportunities that another person doesn't. Marriages can be trashed when husbands and wives compete with one another over who has the more difficult job or who is the best provider or who's carrying the, the burden of responsibility. And unmarried folks, when your friends get a boyfriend or a girlfriend or get engaged or get married, are you genuinely happy for them? Are you filled with gratitude that God has brought them a wonderful blessing? Or do you uh, go around harping over the fact that you've been passed up once again? Moms, what is, our, what is your reaction when someone else's child succeeds? 
Are you thrilled when someone else's baby learns to walk before yours? Or when your kids are playing in some sort of rec league and the other kids are doing great and your kid doesn't know what they're doing out there? Do you murmur about them behind their back, dismissing them with backhanded compliments and trying to aid their humility by cutting them down to size? Men, how do you react when someone else gets a promotion at work? If you were the general in Saul's army who was replaced by this young upstart David, what would your reaction have been? Would you throw your whole weight behind him and want to see him succeed? Or would you rather undermine his authority and his leadership at every chance you get? Envy just ruins things. It destroys things. So rather than being envious, what if we started to rejoice in the blessings of others? What if we started to celebrate what God was doing in things and asking the Lord to change our hearts in that way? But if you want the cure for envy, the crazy cure for envy, it's this. The only way to be cured from your envy is to remind yourself who gets to define you. You see, you can try to define yourself. You can let others try to speak into your life and define yourself. But the most important person who can give you a definition is that God of the universe. If we are defined not by ourselves and not by others, but by God, things start to change. This was Saul's biggest problem. Saul couldn't see Saul like God saw Saul. That's a tongue twister, so let me say it one more time. Saul couldn't see Saul like God saw Saul. There you go. You guys have got it. Saul didn't have the eyes to see himself like God saw him. God saw Saul as the king. God saw Saul as the first person who should be anointed to lead his people who he dearly loved. God saw Saul as someone who was worthy to receive this new heart, this Holy Spirit coming down upon him. That's how God saw Saul. But Saul saw Saul very differently. He saw himself as little. He was tall in stature, but tiny in heart. And he couldn't get past himself. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel, you know, as this whole Agag story is going on, as Samuel is speaking to Saul, Samuel says these words. And these are great reminders to each and every one of us, I believe. Read them with me. Although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king of Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission. Who defines Saul? If Saul had let God give him his definition, how different would the story have been? And now here's my question for you today. Who does God see when he looks at you? It's beautiful. Because God sees you as a dearly loved child. 
God sees you, just you, not, I mean, individually. If it was just one of us, God sees you as worthy of his son dying so that you could live. That's pretty special. God sees you as valuable. He sees the potential that is there. He sees your, your natural giftings and he wants to bathe you in grace. God sees you like one of his, like his own child. It's said that, like, as we look through Revelation and we see sort of these stories that are going on, these, like, people who are dressed in new clothes, they're clothed in Jesus. They're wrapped in Jesus. And when God looks at them, God sees his son, his child. What a beautiful thing. So all the mess that's going on, all the things that might distract your eyes from what God is wanting you to do, can this just be enough for you that when God looks at you, he says, this is somebody special. And I love them. I love them so much that I sent Jesus Christ to die for them. I want to ransom them. I want to redeem them. I want to uh, amplify what they're you know, their, their capacity, their God-given capacity is I want to give you new gifts and new graces and I want you to be somebody who serves me and can do incredible things. Can you see that? If you change how you see yourself, there's not much to be envious about. As a pastor, if we change ourselves to see ourselves the way God sees us, I might... I'm chosen by the Lord, okay, good. I'm seeking to do what he's asked me to do and do it faithfully, good. There's a blessing in that. I want to invite our worship team to come forward this morning and I want to pray with you. I want to pray that God would give you eyes to see yourself the way that he sees you and that you'd stop looking for that affirmation out of your own heart or out of, the, out of the culture around you or the people around you. Nobody else ultimately gets to define who you are. Your mom and dad don't get to define who you are. You don't get to define who you are. God wants to define who you are. So in this moment, as we pray, would you just pray this prayer with me? God... Speak into my heart and remind me of who I am. God, speak into my heart and remind me of who I am. The Bible tells us we were bought at a price. The price of Jesus Christ. What a valuable cost. But God loves you enough to set aside all of heaven Come and do this thing for you. So God, would you help us to see us like you see us? Remind us of who we are. Take our eyes off of all the things that can distract. Tear up any root of envy and jealousy that's inside of us. Help us to find ways to rejoice 
in the blessings of others. Help us to find ways to celebrate when others celebrate. And God, remind us over and over again as we wake up tomorrow morning, as our feet hit the floor, cause that prayer to to come back to our minds that you would remind us of who we really are. Thank you that we are your children. And it's in your wonderful name that we pray.